Okay. I'd yeah. like to welcome uh, Beth Lampfair to the podcast, my mother. Um, thank you for coming on. Are you excited to be here? Absolutely. I was honored to be asked. Yeah. Well, because so I think I've recorded, I don't know how many yet, um, but I figured we needed kind of more of a female perspective on the pod rather than just me and all my guy friends. Um, so That's I thought awesome. of you as the first uh, guest. Thank you. Um, so do you want to give the people kind of a general intro about yourself? Just like a quick sure. rundown, elevator pitch, sure. if you will. Okay. Um, I'm Avery's mom. Um, and he is my firstborn. And I'm very proud of him. Um, an elevator pitch? <laughs> well, just like a general, like, who are you? Like, Okay. Couple I, well, that's a really good question right now that my kids have grown up and left. So uh, it comes to everybody's realization, especially women um, hate to genderize that, but um, yeah, I identify myself as Avery's mom for many years <laughs> or George's wife, which is really not a good thing. But um, I am Elizabeth Lamphere and I am 56 years old. And I am actually taking a year off from doing anything for the first time in my life. So I'm not teaching or working the grind this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's kind of talk about, um, so obviously you said that this is your first full year off where you haven't done anything. Um, how did you kind of get your start, um, I don't know where you want to start with your kind of life. I mean, we could go back to your like kindergarten if you wanted, but I don't know <laughs> where you want to start high school, college, or professionally. Um, I probably, I could start with high school. Okay. Um, high school, I was not a good student. Mm -hmm. And I actually, my parents- Where did you go to high um, school? I went to high school at Simsbury High School in Connecticut. Okay. And I had moved there when I was in seventh grade. So I moved from uh, kind of a blue collar town, Monroe, Connecticut, to this kind of affluent town, Simsbury, Connecticut, um, in seventh grade. And I continued through my high school. But high school um, was a time for me to socialize. That's really why I went to school. Um, I was very social. So, and I played sports, but academics, I mean, I, um, I kind of did the bare minimal to get by. Um, my parents never really told me to do my homework, <laughs> but I'm not going to blame it on them. But I just, you know, I, I had, I never finished a, like a English, like in English, I never read a book. I always read the cliff notes, mm -hmm. whatever. Um, but, um, and all of my friends were very smart and they, they ended up going to really good schools. And when I, uh, attempted to apply. I remember the guidance counselor saying, hmm, don't know if you're really ready for college. Why don't you go to a junior college? Mm -hmm. And I was like, a junior college? You know, what's that? <laughs> I didn't really know. Yeah. And I, I didn't take his, his advice. Um, and I ended up going to Johnson State College, which was about four hours away with the Vermont State College. And I got in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started going to school and then I realized that, I mean, I realized that I was really interested in the, 
the classes, it was so different than high school. I was able to pick my classes. And mm -hmm. so academically, I became a better student. It took me a while to figure it out. Um, and then from Johnson State College, I transferred to Penn State, which is a, a you know, a competitive school. So I went from Johnson State College, which was 4,200 students to Penn State, which was 42,000 yeah, students. So it was, a big, it was a big culture shock, but I needed it. I needed a kind of a kick in the butt. And uh, I, did, I did really well in, in college. Mm. Did you feel like um, you were slacking at Johnson State, not being as... Uh, well, yeah, I guess there's not as many people there that are yeah, it took kind me of a doing couple things years to get my my academic edge, per se. Mm -hmm. um, so and um, yeah, it was a small school, mm -hmm. was, you know, it was a big party school. Mm -hmm. So I needed to transfer somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we've, we've talked about this on the podcast, I believe, but just kind of how college is set up. Um, obviously like th very thankful I was able to go to college, but putting these decisions on 18 year old kids where oh my gosh. they got, especially now, cause I know college, uh, compared the price compared to now is a lot greater than when you went to school, but it was still a very expensive and not everyone could afford it. Uh, but to put that decision on an 18 year old and I mean, cause the parents right. want you to make, they want their kid to make the decision versus like them making the decision for the you. But at the same right. time, like I'm 18, I'm not necessarily worried about what's going to happen to me in five years. Um, I'm just more worried about hanging with my high school friends before the end of the summer, essentially. Um, yeah. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is a big decision. Yeah, mm. I, I think it would be better if we had grade 13, 14 for kind of yeah. exploratory type things. Mm. Yeah, like yeah. when I first started going to school, you have to declare a major. So I mm. wanted to do social work because I wanted to help people. Mm. You know, my dad's looking at me, social work? You want to deal with people's problems? And he's like, why don't you take a computer class? <laughs> well, to preface so I, it, he was a businessman. So, right, right. So I ended up taking a computer class in the 80s. Mm -hmm. So a computer class in the 80s was um, like, I don't want to say Fortran, but it was like. Um, what is Fortran? Well, I can't remember. It so a computer class in the eighties was like flow charts of like, you, you know, you put this in and then you get mm -hmm. this and it's, it's kind of like coding. Okay. So, and I was like, oh my God, it was like, <laughs> and I'm not a math person. And it was just like, not something that I enjoyed, but I enjoyed it. I think I got a C in it. So my dad said, you know, <clears throat> he said, I want you to take a computer class. So I was like, okay. And, you know, computers weren't even a concept. The personal computer was not even mm -hmm. a concept back then. So it was kind of funny. Could have been, yeah. uh, could have been Bill Gates before Bill Gates if you stick, stuck yeah, with computers. Yeah, really? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but so you mentioned that you wanted to go to school to be a social worker. Uh, obviously, I know because you're my mom that you didn't go into social work. Um, right. So then I... So how did and, that and transition another, start? Right. So another thing was this. So when you went to school, it was mm -hmm. so 
on my back was you go to school and you get a job. You get it, you go to school to get an education so you can get a job. So yeah. I was like, okay, what kind of job would I want? So I ended up picking education because you got the summers off, right? Like who doesn't want a job like that? Mm-hmm. So, and also I um, started in special ed, right? And my first special ed class I took at Johnson, they put me with this autistic child, sweet boy, but he was nonverbal autistic <clears throat> in a corner. So every day I had to go to him and try to figure out how to connect with him. And, and were you a freshman at the time? It, or I was, I was a sophomore. Okay. So you're 19, 20. Yeah. 19. And I, and it was a good introduction, I guess, to special ed, but not really because kids like that are not in the school system. Mm Nonverbal kids in a corner are not in the school system. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I don't want to do special ed. Why would I want to, like, I I didn't have the skills or, and it wasn't rewarding. So then I switched to psychology. And then I said, yeah, I loved my psychology teacher at Johnson and I was going to do maybe anthropology, you know, I was like thinking all these things and, you know, I was like, oh, go on anthropological digs. That would be so cool. (laughs) And then I was thinking, well, how can I pay the bills? Like, does that, so I've always had this like voice of reason, like, you know, can I pay the bills with, you know, being an art? being an archaeologist. Mm. So I didn't do that. I chose psychology. Um, and I ended up doing the psychology degree. For, and I ended up doing that at Penn State with mm. a minor in counseling. And my goal was to be a child psychologist. Um, and I did an internship at Penn State at a women's center where I ran the children's program. And these are kids that, um, witness violence in the homes and it was I mean I was still like ah um and I was 20 something and I mentally and emotionally I could not I couldn't do it I mm-hmm. said to myself I, I I can't do this it's just heart-wrenching like every day it was heart-wrenching for me so I was like okay I can't be a child psychologist what do I do I don't know so um I graduated and I managed an ice cream store <laughs> for a couple of years. It was a fine chocolate store too. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it was, you know, so I learned managerial skills and, and then, you know, it got to be a drag. So I was like, okay, how am I going to pay the bills? So then I said, oh, why don't I go back to school and get a teaching degree? And then I could teach kids and then I won't have to really deal with their problems. I could, mm-hmm. you know, be around them. And for some reason, I wanted to do high school, <laughs> which I should have really chosen elementary. It would have been so much yeah. easier. But anyways, I got a degree in, to teach English for um, high school. And why high school? Was it, did you have an I experience where you taught high school kids or you just well, had a really I, good time in high school? So I took a couple classes at Penn State. I took literature, a couple of literature classes and I was just blown away at reading. Like, oh my gosh. You know, I was like, I fell in love with reading. And then I was thinking about my English teacher at high school, how she, um, and she didn't really like make me excited about reading. So I thought mm. maybe I could like be an English teacher where I could get kids excited about reading. So then that's why I kind of chose that. 
and then I could read. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. right? I'd have to, I'd have to read for homework. Yeah. <laughs> so then I kind of <laughs> fell in love with, kind of fell in love with reading. Mm-hmm. But oh boy, still not well read. But there's so many books out there. Yeah, but that's funny that you had kind of a bad experience with your high school English teacher, and that kind of led you to want to do better. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so you were an English teacher for a little bit. Um, yeah. And then, so what, what came after that? So my first teaching experience wasn't the best. Um, I, um, I did it and I'm not going to say names, but I did it in a small town, uh, and it was a culture shock to me. I came from like, I did my student teaching in the center city of Philadelphia, where, you know, kids didn't swear at their teachers. Anyways, um, and it was being a first year teacher, classroom management is a challenge. So I wasn't the best classroom manager. You know, I was new, I was, you know, 26, 26 years old. Um, I just wasn't good at it. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then the school that I worked for, I, they hired me as an English slash Spanish teacher and <laughs> which is kind of funny because I can't roll my R's and I applied to the job because my mom's like, Oh, you could teach Spanish. You can do Spanish one. And I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. And uh, so I ended up applying and I got the job and the next year when they gave me the contract, they gave me mostly Spanish to teach instead of English. And it just wasn't, it didn't sit well with me and that I wasn't a certified Spanish teacher, couldn't roll my R's. <laughs> um, so I didn't sign my teaching contract, which wasn't a good thing. And that I didn't get a teaching job that year. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I ended up becoming a paraeducator. And then I, you know, kind of like a couple years doing that and talk about poor pay. Um, what is that? What is paraeducator? Is that a, um, so it, what does that, does that stand for something as abbreviated? So it's called like a teacher's assistant. Okay. Right. So I had one position in Winooski where I was a paraeducator, but I also ran their math intervention, which is kind of funny because I'm not that great at math, <laughs> but it was good because I could understand the kids and where they're coming from. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, and the math that I taught was fine, personal finance. So I taught them how to write a check and how to do a bank ledger and all this, you know, life skill stuff. So I loved it. And I had a small group. I probably had seven kids that they had an alternative math program. And these are high risk kids. You know, some of them would have been, you know, yeah, high risk kids. So I felt great doing this intervention, uh, not intervention, but an alternative math mm-hmm. program with them. So yeah, they educators to do different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's one thing that I think just across the board in school that there, there should be more of that personal finance because we don't really teach our kids about money in the school system, which true. kind of is silly, I think, because... <laughs> I mean, that's how you pay for things when you get older and you can kind of see how in America there's like people are struggling and the wealthier are getting True. more wealthy and the poor are getting like poor. If, if you just had basic 
personal finance, create a budget, save money, like learn how to invest. If you had that conversation with kids at fourth, because it's not really a hard concept. I feel like as far as you have a hundred dollars to spend in a month and you spend $10 on food or whatever, like you can start at basic right. and then grow from right. there. Right. And then also teach them that, yeah, you might have a credit card and yeah, if you want that, you know, cocktail table, I don't know why I'm thinking of this. I was thinking of myself as a kid, you want like a special cocktail table for your living room and you don't mm-hmm. have the means to buy. Oh, but I could put it on the credit card. Yeah. Right. And then I don't have to pay for it right away, but 17 point, I, I don't know, even know what the fees are today. Cause I pay my credit card every month. Mm. But when you're a kid, you don't, right? Because you don't have the money. So that that whole thing should be taught as well. Yeah. You know, credit cards are a slippery slope when you don't have a lot of money to pay for things. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's kind of also just part of like the American consumer lifestyle where, oh, my friend got a new car. I got to get a new car. Oh, my friend just bought this or my friend just got this new apartment. I got to go and get this nice new apartment. Um, Mm -hmm. Things like that, which I I kind of have seen myself fall into that trap sometimes. Um, But let's get back to your story. So you're a parent. You have a great apartment, by the way. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Um, So you're a paraeducator in Winooski, Vermont, for people that don't know. Um, so what, what comes after that? So from there, I, I did a children's, um, summer program for them. Uh, they had, uh, Winooski has a big, um, English language learner population. And, uh, I ran the children's pro well, they didn't run it. I uh, assisted running it with another woman and we did the summer program. It was, that was fabulous. And then, um, I, from there, I actually got a job working in Burlington. That was my, I left Winooski. Mm-hmm. Um, they had an English position that opened and um, they actually gave it to somebody else. I was very, <laughs> very upset. But anyways, um, you know, it's, it's competitive, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of left there and I went to um, Edmonds Elementary and I started, uh, I actually worked in their special ed department, special ed, mm. come full circle there. And mm. uh, I was hired as a reading interventionist. And the funny thing is, is they paid me $6.35 back then. And an hour? An hour. And I do remember, so, and I loved the job because I got to teach reading, mm. right? I wasn't a certified reading person. But um, I had a master's in English ed, right? I had to follow a strict program, you know, like a phonics program or stuff. But I absolutely loved, loved the job. But I do remember one time opening my paycheck because I didn't have direct deposit back then. Mm -hmm. And I literally cried because I think my paycheck was $120. And so what they do is they they, you work 32 hours so they don't have to pay you benefits. Mm -hmm. And my rent was 410. So it was like, yeah. So I had to figure something out. And let's see what else happened after that. um, Let's see, I I think I got married. 
No, I got married in the summer. Mm-hmm. Right when I was working at Winooski, and then my after I got married, I work at I worked at Edmonds. So we had two kind of incomes coming in, which was helpful. Mm-hmm. And then um, the next year, I got pregnant with you, <laughs> which is fabulous. Yeah. And that kind of rearranged my brain a little bit. And then uh, talk about daycare. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> daycare was $7,000 a year. Yeah. So it didn't make sense for me to work my, you know, low income job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and this was the time when um, daddy was starting LMS. And that's George Lamphere for those yeah. on the podcast, my father that don't know. Right. Um, but I do right. want to go back to your comment about childcare because it was $7,000 and that was back in the 90s. So I don't yes. even, God knows what it is today. Avery, it's crazy. You have to be a, like a doctor or have a high profile job to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, a true believer in the um, federal federal daycare, yeah, of some sort. They need to figure it out. They yeah. need to I mean, support. Families. Say what say what you want to say about certain politicians, but it it would it would be helpful for everyone if there is universal pre K and if not younger. I think oh, personally, yeah. but oh, definitely yes, yes, because you can screen a kid in pre K and you could determine whether they're going to have literacy problems that young mm-hmm. yeah yeah early intervention yeah but we'll continue on your story um so i guess w- what would you say the next kind of big chapter in your life was after that um well dad and i went into business together um okay. we um his dad was um a very brilliant man he still is and he um designed this fuel probe that went into aircraft that didn't uh, corrode. And it was made out of a certain um, material called all composite, which is kind of like a layers and layers of nylon weaved together. So that, um, and most people, most um, people in industry make it out of aluminum, which corrodes easily. And there's more uh, field failures with aluminum. So the design was really good, plus the um, materials. Mm-hmm. And um, this is a company that uh, dad's dad had started with another person, but it never really got off. It was mostly on um, paper. Mm-hmm. He had three different companies. And then um, Gramps's um, partner, and him had um, a parting, not a very good one. And Gramps was allowed to take this company for the fuels for the fuel system with him. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he had this, you know, the rights to that uh, business, and he wanted to do something with it. And Dad was running the business at the time, running the restaurant at the time, and he kept giving Dad all these papers to look at like look at this look at that what do you think and so dad would kind of like consult gramps on the side while he was doing uh the restaurant Mm -hmm. and 
eventually Graham said, do you want to come full time and we can partner up? So dad said eventually, yeah, after he's, um, he actually didn't even sell the restaurant. He just folded it up. Um, and then I came on board as I actually soldered um, boards for the um, fuel probes. So I learned how to solder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was great. And then yeah. um, I was pregnant with you when I, while I was soldering. And is, was, is that okay? <laughs> no, it was determined that I couldn't because there was this one material called flux, mm -hmm. F-L-U-X. And it, um, it kind of, I don't want to say it was toxic, but they said that it was unsafe for me to okay. be using it while I was pregnant. So, so I have an out for any time I do anything stupid because of that. <laughs> Is that fair <laughs> enough to <laughs> say? What, flux? <laughs> yeah, it's, I'll blame it on the flux. <laughs> no, and I only did it for a little bit the flux so and the funny thing is is you lose flux when you f up so when you seriously so really? and it's funny you can swear you, on the podcast it's fine yeah i don't i, I okay. choose not to okay so, just letting um, you know okay so when uh, when you solder a component so these components are really small some of them mm -hmm. you have to you take these really small tweezers and you have to put them so you're populating a board have you seen boards that are populated like a circuit board like, it's a circuit yeah. board. So that's what I was populating. So if you put the little thing on crooked or something mm -hmm. and you have to move it after you've soldered it, you use the flux. So you little okay. dab of flux and then you're able to move your component a little bit without mm -hmm. really messing up the, um, what do they call it? The uh, attachment. Okay. Yeah. So then you kind of, and it's kind of a joke, like I, I need flux. because Yeah. I fluxed flux. it up. Yeah, I flexed it up. But then after that, I um, I left this uh, soldering world, and then we I started doing the the finances, accounts payable, accounts receivable. So I was in charge of that, and that gave me a lot of flexibility. You didn't have you didn't have to go to daycare until you were like one. Mm -hmm. So that was great because I kind of, you kind of talk a little bit and I could tell whether you were being abused or not. That was my biggest fear. Every mother's biggest fear. Yeah. Um, so I lucked out in that I was able to have you here while I was working. Mm -hmm. And then we got a little bigger and I ended up being like the HR person. So when we started while out- we still doing the finances as well? Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I did the finances and the HR, you know, but we didn't have many employees. We had one, two, three, we had about five employees and then we got a little bigger. I'm starting to think by the time I left, I think we had 15, maybe 18, 18 employees. Mm. And I was, you know, I had, it did everything from policy to you know the handbook to firing mm. and yeah all, all the hr stuff yeah yeah um, and i no go ahead go ahead no i mean it was it was a good um 
thing to do. I mean, it, it gave me flexibility being a mom. Um, mm -hmm. You, you uh, went to half day kindergarten. So you used to get up, get off the bus and you would come to the office and you'd sit at the little desk in color while I finished working, which is great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you want to kind of t walk me through kind of the, the decision to leave, um, maybe why you left, um, and <laughs> okay. what, uh, you're, I did it what you did save, after? I did it to save our, my marriage. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to stay married and, um, I have a different style than dad does. And it was just getting too big for me to be the HR person and, married to dad mm -hmm. um kind of too close for comfort there were some decisions that were being made that I didn't agree with and mm -hmm. um I just yeah so one day I well I I, I did all the hiring so I was the mm -hmm. HR person and I used to advertise and hire people and blah blah, blah. so I put an ad in the paper for my job. <laughs> and one weekend I uh, had conducted interviews. I think dad might've been traveling. I don't know how I did it, but I conducted interviews without him knowing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, George. He, he thanks me for this today, but yeah. So I met this woman. It was my first interview. And I was like, Oh my gosh, she was like, she literally had a halo around her head because she was very professional and she knew a bit more than I did with about HR. Mm -hmm. And um, she was just perfect. And we were um, about to change our um, software system where everybody, like the software where our inventory and our finances and everything kind of talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, we were about to change that. And um, anyways, I ended up hiring her <laughs> without telling dad. <laughs> and yeah, the weekend I told him that I hired her, he was very upset. Mm -hmm. Like he slept over on the other side, that upset. And I, I think over time, I just told him that this company had to go to the next level and having me, the wife down the hall, Mm -hmm. as the HR is just it wasn't I don't think it it just wasn't going to get us to the next level not that I'm a hero or anything but it was just time for me to leave mm -hmm. um, well because it still has yeah. that kind of family feel I family feel of a company is that what you're trying to say and yes, it, yes. the company and needed to kind of grow up a little bit or right exactly right yeah yeah for sure yeah. And, you know, to this day, Gramps is out and, you know, dad and I are still active players, but mm -hmm. I, my, my role now is, you know, chair, I'm on the board, you know, so mm -hmm. that's easier for me. Yeah. Yeah. But, and then I went back to school again, of course, because that's <laughs> what I love. So I went back to school to get a reading degree because that was my last job. Right. Mm -hmm. And they pay me $6 and 35 cents an hour because I wasn't a certified reading person, supposedly. So I said, okay, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could actually do something I love and get paid for it? 
So then I went back and I got a certificate of advanced graduate study, which took me a while because I had you guys. But mm-hmm. I did it. Um, I took one class at a time and it was fabulous. So then I did that for about five years in the schools. Getting, getting your degree took five years or teaching? Um, let's see. The degree took about... I think the degree took me about four years. Okay. Because I took one at a time every mm-hmm. semester. Well, was, I could do the math, but it's <laughs> around four <laughs> years. We'll say around I know, it's four thir- years. It's 30 credits. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. one, one class would be three. So what would that be? Three into 30, 10. So I'd have to take 10 classes. Um, yeah. Wow. So two, two a year. So yeah, about five years. I think I took Mm. some in the summer too. Okay. Yeah. And so did you feel like after doing that, um, did that kind of fulfill yourself as a, did you get the same feeling that you had at Edmonds where you loved it? Um, but obviously you were getting a higher pay now. So was that fulfilling? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And then with that came other things. So, you know, being a reading specialist, you have to kind of work with other teachers and then you have to kind of share best practices. So you're kind of like deemed like the expert, mm-hmm. but not really, but you're deemed like, you know, and, and some schools um, are small and they're not ready for somebody to come in and kind of oversee what they're doing with their literacy department. So Mm -hmm. there was some like, you know, resistance, like, oh, who are you? Um, But it depends on the school and where they're at. Yeah. And what, you know, what they want to do. But I've worked in some great schools that the teachers are all collaborative and, you know, want to do best practices. Mm -hmm. Um, So you were this reading specialist at a couple schools. Um, so you said for about five years. Uh, so what, what happened after that? Cool. Um, I stopped, um, let's see my last position. I was in there for a couple of years and the pro the, with, um, with public education, the first person hired is usually the first person, uh, the last person hired seniority wise is the first person to be cut when there's um, a budget cut. And is that and, because of unions normally? Well, it's usually, um, yeah, maybe a part of the union, but it has to do with just kind of seniority. So yeah, I guess a union kind of thing. But so like our, this is sad, but art, music, social services, like um, guidance counselors and interventionists are always cut for, that's the first to go. Mm -hmm. So but the last school that I worked at, which I loved, and it was a fabulous school. I mean, they had a part-time guidance counselor and she was fabulous, but um, where they really should have had a full-time, but she was cut at one point. Okay. And then I was cut. Um, I was doing a full. Yeah, I, I had, um, they actually had two literacy 
people. They had two reading specialists there for some reason. And so when the budget needed to be cut, it was me because I was hired last. Okay. Which sucks. Mm -hmm. um, so from there, I went and worked for a nonprofit um, that did literacy mentoring, which, which is perfect, right? It was mm -hmm. um, school-based mentoring. So I worked for Everybody Wins Vermont, which um, my, my position was coordinating uh, volunteers from the community to come in and read with students during their lunch and recess. So that was fun. I did that for three years. Mm -hmm. And then it, does that kind of bring you up to current day where you're yeah. been taking this year off? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the whole life story. Yeah, God, I didn't. I, you know what? I, this morning I was thinking, what am I going to talk about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, I don't. I'm not a big talker, and so I guess I can talk about myself. Most people can, huh? Yeah, that. Yeah, that's well. That's kind of the goal of this podcast is just to kind of have people talk about themselves because everyone has interesting stories and it can help yeah. others that are curious in life to navigate and whatnot right. um but i'm kind of curious so it started with kind of your social work and then it's obviously progressed throughout your entire life but there's always been that sense of helping others um do you have any insight of how that kind of got instilled in you or is it just something you were born with do you think god that's a uh, i don't know hmm we, I don't know. I wanted to do something meaningful. I think I wanted to give back mm -hmm. somehow. Um, do you think that's because you were like fortunate to go to college or I, I know, I don't know. I mean, I have, was a nurse, so yeah, my she mom kind of devoted nurse. her life to helping others. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I, I felt like it was an avenue that I could find a job because, you know, there's always teachers that are needed or mm -hmm. social workers. I have this one friend from high school and I admire her greatly. She's an artist and she was a close friend in high school and she lost her dad when she was young and she always went she used art, I think, as a, her outlet. And she would have like a loom in her bedroom. And she like- What is that? Uh, a, a loom, loom. or a she, loom? A loom, like a weaving loom, L-O-O-M. I don't know I if I, I know yeah. what that, I just want to like look up a picture of it. I don't know. Yeah, so she had this loom. I think I'm saying it right. Yeah, I know you are. Okay, so it's yeah. essentially something that weaves. Okay. Yeah. So she was very artistic. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And um, I think she used it for her therapy. And um, so, and I always thought, wouldn't it have been nice to be an artist? Like, oh mm -hmm. my God. And then, but I thought, that's not practical. How do you pay the bills? So I always had this this monkey or somewhere saying, you know, you, you got to find a job that's going to pay the bills because money was always like, you know, tight in our house. 
Mm-hmm. Where am I leading to? Um, so I, I never really thought that I always, I guess I'd look to helping others as a enjoyable way to spend your day, I guess. Mm. It feels good to give back. It feels good to help people. Yeah. Well, it's like they say that about people give, when people give money to charity, they don't necessarily do it to help others. They do it so that one, they can either tell people they do it or oh, yeah. two, that it makes them feel better about themselves rather than um, actually wanting to, which I guess if people donate money to charities that actually do help people, because obviously there's charities that kind of just take your money and don't do much. But if you can incentivize people to donate, I don't think it really matters what they, uh, what their motives are behind it. No, I think um, I'm trying to think of that question that you asked. Is it instilled in me or is it just my core? I I know I'm more of an observer than I am like a talker and a, so maybe that might be a characteristic that might be good in the helping professions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I definitely think, I mean, this this kind of has to do with politics, but just more the world in general. I feel like there needs to be more observing and listening in the world than just yelling and talking. I feel like if everyone just kind of stepped back and really just listened to people and not either read tweets or read headlines on TV or something. I think we could all kind of understand where people are coming from more rather than blaring out certain random things. Absolutely. My, um, my sister sends me these daily inspirations. And the other day she sent, she says, when you talk, you are only repeating what you already know. But if you listen, you may learn something new. Yeah, that's very. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it says the Dalai Lama that. Who knows if that's true? <laughs> probably, probably is something. It's, it sounds <laughs> I, like something you would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's what I liked when um, you and Cameron were talking the other day that we really made my heart very full and that you guys were talking how important it is discussion listening um it's kind of what what the world needs right now and it's therapeutic right isn't i think you guys were discussing that and i was like it's so true conversation Mm -hmm. that actually means something or just exploratory (laughs) Yeah. doesn't have to mean anything, right? Mm-hmm. Well, cause that's, ideas. Yeah, because that's how humans, I feel like that's how we progress as a society is we have kind of conversations about certain things that you might not otherwise, because if, if you're not talking about them and essentially creating new ideas, it, you just kind of fall on a plateau, so to speak. Because mm-hmm. yeah. those, those are my favorite uh discussions in college when even the professor was kind of like oh wow i didn't even kind of think of this or i'm i can't really think of something off the top of my head but when you essentially create new knowledge um i don't know i I find that very exciting absolutely yeah yeah um the other day i was listening 
to a podcast <laughs> and it, it was and it was the woman that started and I didn't know it was a woman that started it the um, me too movement mm-hmm. um and I should know her name but I don't she's written this new book on I can't remember the book anyways what she said on this little conversation and it it was like this big aha moment, aha, aha moment for me <laughs> was she was talking about her mother mm-hmm. and she didn't have a great relationship with her mother and she wished her mother did certain things for her when she was younger and her adult perspective of it now is her mother loved her the best that she could mm-hmm. and she just it wasn't the fact that her mother didn't love her her mother didn't have the capacity to love her in the way that she needed to be loved hmm. i know that's really deep but it's not because it's so everybody does what they can with the skills and the resources and their their mental state and how they were raised and so sometimes I think and I love you mom (laughs) that I wish my mom like sat me down and said okay now you know you're you're a strong girl or you Mm -hmm. know all yeah it just kind of I needed more of a um, cheerleader I think and and um, and it's not that my mom didn't have the capacity it wasn't that she didn't love me and she didn't have the time she just didn't have that capacity does that make sense? Yeah, Someone definitely. Hi to you in yeah. the background. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And you I have just, to go? No, no, no. Oh. Um, I think it's also just kind of society has changed in a whole, um, as, a, as a whole, not in a whole. Sorry. Uh, but no, parents. that's true. I mean, parents. And I think there's also a lot to do with research, like psychological research that kids need supporting parents and uh, they need a strong background with people that are helping them along the way. And I've, that definitely wasn't, I mean, obviously you know better than me because you were alive back then, but that wasn't as much as a emphasis for parents that you need to kind of see where your kid's up to. Um, how are they feeling? Are they feeling right, right. depressed? Like those, those types of things, especially in high school. Cause I mean, high school is kind of that age where you're very like worried about what everyone thinks about you and your appearance. And am I popular? Am I smart? Um, right. so it's, I think it's just definitely a different world and it's continually changing too. I mean, even when I was growing up, I mean, you, again, you probably know better than me, but there wasn't really any talk about mental health when I was in high school. Um, no. And there's definitely some times when I felt just shitty about myself because whether it was I wasn't hanging out with the cool kids or something like that. Um, so I, I think it is good. And I'm, I would like to think that it, it's continually getting better as far as it's yeah. not going, going to get worse. Right. So they didn't talk about mental health in high school or not. I mean, not really. Cause what that was 2012 through 2016 was was the years I was in high school. That got, you know, what they talked a lot about was bullying. 
Yeah, kind bullying, of relates to mental bullying health. was a big thing when I was in high school Yeah, and like middle school. Uh, but there wasn't so much on kind of med- like, I feel like the mental health movement has been, especially in the past couple of years. Um, but yeah, bullying was one thing that was, and I think it was more cyber bullying because people were kind of freaking out. And as far as how do we stop that? Cause I grew up essentially when social media took off. Um, and it was something that no one knew what to do. The teachers didn't know, like the school systems right. didn't know, parents didn't know what to do. Uh, cause it's this new thing. And obviously you want your kid to be able to converse with people because if they're not conversing with people online, then they're not going to necessarily know what's going on in school the next day. But at the same time, if it's, I mean, it's, it's caused kids, kids to commit suicide. And so, right. So was there bullying online for you? For me? So I don't, Oh, there goes my camera. Um, I'm trying, I can't really remember anything like for me specifically, uh, I like to think that I surround myself with good people in high school and whatnot. Um, yeah. But I did, I mean, there was certain instances um, where things happened in high school. Um, there was a kid uh, that went to ADL, which is a neighboring town's middle school that actually committed suicide, I think in like the early mid two thousands, maybe. Um, yeah. and that, I think that was part cyberbullying, part real bullying. Um, but I, I feel like at our high school, it wasn't a major problem. Um, but I might've been isolated from it and just not really heard about it. Um, right. You were too busy yeah. playing lacrosse. <laughs> well, no, not only that is just, I wasn't involved in it, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, I grew up, so I had Twitter in eighth grade, um, Facebook, and like that's when I got it. So I can only imagine if I had it like growing up, maybe from like sixth grade on, it might be different. Right. Um, because I think that's a major. I look at social media and the people kind of my age look at it as a way to connect with friends where I think the people, and this could just be me like generalizing everyone, but this is my personal opinion. Uh, so the people that are a couple years, like two, three, even like one year younger, think of it as a way to project themselves as a, as a better person to society, essentially. So the main goal of, for them on social media is for them to look amazing, uh, to, to, okay. And, and for me, it's more just, oh, I took this funny picture. I want to share it with all my friends where mm-hmm. I don't really care about my standing. And I don't. And right. again, that just might be my personality. And there's people in both subsections that fall into the other category. But I personally feel like that's a pretty good generalization of because so like I said, when social media first came out, it for us, it was like this new like underground thing almost. Right. Um, Twitter is used in different ways. And mm-hmm. I've kind of gotten off of Twitter because there's so much, you know, the the smack talk, I think, is yeah. so much on, more on Twitter. Um, oh, yeah. But I have terrible. I have a story to tell you that um, when I worked the last district that I worked at as a special um, as a reading person, um, 
they were really into uh, the digital um, classroom experience. So everybody got an iPad, every teacher got an iPad, every student got an iPad. And every teacher, it was during our um, beginning of our um, um, in-service in August, we had to open up a Twitter account. And the reason why we're opening it up is because they were looking at it as a tool to network, mm-hmm. which it is. It's a great tool to network. Yeah. So I created a profile and then I started following all the reading people and see what they were doing. So I would know where other conferences were. I knew what, you know, Jennifer Stanovich or, you know, all these um, people that I would admire Mm -hmm. in the literacy world. And I knew what they were reading. I knew what conferences they were going to. I knew what they were doing in their classroom. So, and that was a great tool. (laughs) And then some people, (laughs) sadly, they were taking their people in the literacy world, they were combining their political views mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean and actually the woman who runs the literacy uh curriculum for essex high school she's political mm-hmm. and i was like wow hey, don't do that yeah. <laughs> i don't think that's a good idea i mean i um i think it's a it's good to um say you know black lives matter and stuff like that i don't deem that political but like, don't, you know, don't cross the two, don't cross the two, as, you know, using it as a networking tool rather than mm-hmm. a platform to show your political views. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a great point as far as how great social media can be, because like you said, you have access to all these uh, reading literature people that are in your field and otherwise you wouldn't have any communication with them. You couldn't know their thoughts. Uh, you Hi. couldn't, for example, me in the marketing field, I can follow these top level marketers, see what books they're reading, see what conferences they're reading. They can write a blog and I can follow them on Twitter and I can click on their link to their blog. Right. right. I can listen to their podcast. I think that's amazing. But then, like yeah. you said, you have, um, and like what we mentioned about the cyberbullying and stuff, you can, as much positive as it brings, it also brings this negative Um, And I don't think it's as easy as saying, oh, just take the negative off the platform because what's negative to me and you to someone that's living in an Arab Muslim state, that's completely normal. So how do you judge what's negative and what's positive in different cultures? It's almost like each, I mean, but it's almost like you need to break it down to each country or each state or each city. But then even within say a small town, you have different factions of people that believe in different things. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a really hard thing to judge, I think. Uh, And I think there needs to be more of an education around kind of how you should use it. If you see something negative, rather than just kind of getting all pissed off, just kind of ignore it. I don't know, because I feel like there's there's you can get quote unquote triggered and appalled by you can watch anything on YouTube or Netflix today and feel feel depressed about the world or something. Um, and like you mentioned, your uh, experience working in was it the battered children's center? Or it was just chilled children. Um, it was a woman's center, and it, you know, okay. I, the term 
the term I think hopefully is not used anymore, but I, I called it the battered woman shelter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's you yeah, know, probably shouldn't use that term. Yeah, it, I don't know. I don't know. It's just it's too gra- it sounds yeah. too graphic. But I guess what um, I'm trying to say is that that stuff outside of social media exists and you can go seek out that kind of media, I guess if, is what I'm trying to say. So it's kind of, I think we should need to put more onus on the user. Um, <clears throat> they're realizing though that human nature, right? This is the last uh, revelation with um, Facebook that human nature is drawn to engages more when there's conflict, right? So like if I mm-hmm. read something that might disturb me or might like make me mad, I will be more engaged. Is that what they're determining? Yeah, well, because it's so it's essentially if so I think the kind of the stuff that's come out about Facebook is that conflict means more engagements on Facebook and not just means more profit for them because it's more ads and right. things like that. Right. So essentially right. if you, so say you make a post that I love Coca-Cola and everyone just likes it and says, Oh, I like it. I like it too. I like it too. I like it too. If you post something that says I like Coca-Cola more than Pepsi, then you have okay. pe- all the Pepsi people reply to your Facebook post. What? Like Pepsi so much better. You're so dumb. Like, and right, then everyone right. gets pissed off and you, you start, like you mentioned earlier with Twitter, people are like dunking on each other, quote unquote. Um, do you, I, I don't know. I've never watched it, but do you remember the Jerry Springer show? No, I, oh that God, name sounds look, familiar. You should look it up. I never watched it, but it was all based on that. And I think some of his guests would like get up and throw furniture and it was like really it was a volatile um, talk show. Jerry Springer. And was it supposed to be? Yeah, oh, worst, yeah. It, was, it says the worst show, the worst the show in the history of television. Yeah, but it aired for 27 seasons and it had 5,000 episodes. Really? And I'm sure they, yeah. And it was like this big thing. Oh, so it's not like famous people. It's almost like, so it it was like Dr. Phil almost. Yeah, but it was controversial, such as incest, adultery, profanity, physical fights, scantily clad guests. So it was like Howard Stern. It was like a it was a yeah, it was like a R-rated of Dr. Phil, essentially. Yeah. Okay. But your point about that was that it's <laughs> it's conflict i guess people like that yeah i mean people and i i mean you kind of see that in all sorts of media too um as far as things that sell whether it's music or art or movies is something that's kind of shocking and that maybe hasn't happened before and it kind of pushes the boundaries quote unquote right um c- because I, I always say that with music, rock and roll, when it first came out, was vulgar and they talk about right. sex and it's all this stuff. And then the next kind of iteration of that, I would say, is hip hop, where it comes out and it's even more aggressive. And right. then, I, I mean, I don't know if anything will come after that. Um, but Do you know that 
Elvis Presley's stage presence was like, oh my god. Cause yeah, because like, he because he like he thrust his hips, like he moved his right, hips back right. and forth. People were like, oh. yeah. it like, was erotic, right? Or yeah, whatever. The women were showing their knees or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So you're going to a hip hop uh, concert tonight. Yes, yes. Going yeah. to Action Bronson. Um I looked him up briefly. I didn't I wasn't aware of him. I I wanted yeah. to see who you were saying. Yeah, he is he's pretty talented. He like he cooks, he um obviously makes music, he's a painter as well. Okay. Um he's got he, so he what has are a lot his of songs cooking. What are his songs about? What's his I, I would say the his themes are Hmm. He's 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 a very comedic rapper, so a lot of his lines are pretty funny. Um, I'm trying. He doesn't. It. He's not one of those rappers where it's like, oh, like what he said was like super introspective. Normally, it's just kind of he says things that sound cool. If that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, I also just kind of enjoy him more as a cook and a person if that makes sense that's kind of more why that's I'm, cool. uh he has this show called uh fuck that's delicious on vice <laughs> and that's on youtube too okay. um and he's just one of those people if you watch the show everyone he meets they love it like they he becomes okay. best friends with them he has like that charisma personality all right um i saw which, that which he... i kind of admire yeah, I saw that he was quite heavy, but he's working on. He lost like 130 pounds. Oh yeah, he's a lot. He was he did weigh like 400 pounds. Yeah. Um, and now he's down considerably, which Good. just kind of shows to everyone out there if you if you do weigh a little too much and you feel unhealthy, it is it is possible to lose um, weight. Yeah, and I think it definitely at least I found with losing weight, it's, it really comes down to diet and what you're consuming because I, I mean, I don't know what the percentage I've seen different percentage, whether it's 90, 10 is nutrition, 80, 20, 70, 30. Uh, but I do think it matters um, how much you eat versus just because if you work out a ton and you still eat like shit. <laughs> True. Yeah, absolutely. Have you lost yeah. weight? Um, I mean, well, so I gained a little bit of weight during quarantine because I ha- was not exercising at all. Um, well, I was exercising minimally, um, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I've probably lost like 10 pounds since the peak of quarantine or something like that. Um, I was getting up there a little bit. Yeah. Good. You're working mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about your future. What my is future? Oh my yeah. god! So you're you're taking this year <laughs> off. Do you have anything planned past that, or um, any ideas percolating well, in in the mind? So, Dad and I are going to travel a little bit. Um, yeah, I I definitely want to travel, but mm. I need to find something that I enjoy doing. I have to. I have to like I keep telling this to dad, I have to find my own gig, like my own piece in that um, I need to be busy mentally. 
Mm-hmm. So, and I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet. So um, my goal this year is to just be, I know it's like my sound corny, but to just be still, right. And to maybe just listen, like think about, and you can't figure out what to do if you're constantly busy and doing. So I'm going to just be still and hopefully something will blow through the wind or something of what mm-hmm. I should be doing. But there's so many things I could do. And the one was I could be a private tutor uh, for reading because I would love that. Mm. And I would um, work with just students one-on-one and I could you know, do my own hours and stuff like that. That's probably what I'll do. I mean, that makes the most sense, right? Mm. Yeah. But yeah, it is, I kind of like what you mentioned uh, when you said that you need to be still to think, because I definitely think that's something that I've definitely kind of fallen into. And I'm sure others do where you, you wake up, you, you will go to work or log on to work before you're listening to music in the car or whatever. And then you're at work, you're listening to music or podcasts all day while doing work, you're in meetings, talking, you get home, you're like, you make dinner, get dinner out or like, we're always constantly doing things. Right. And especially with a phone now, obviously, if you're, if you're not doing anything, you're looking at your phone, whether it's social media or playing a game or reading um, some article. And I think there, there's definitely not as much reflection time um, in society as there was before, just because, before necessarily didn't have anything to do. Um, right. So you, you had to kind of have that reflection time. Um, and now, right. now there's not as much as that. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I, at, a month ago, a month ago, I had four emails. So I had my personal email and then I had my work email then I had uh, LMS's email, which is the company. And then I had the board that I was on, the Common Hall board. Mm-hmm. So I, I was checking four email addresses a day. And uh, the company's email, I didn't really have to reply to. I just kind of needed to know what was going on. Mm-hmm. But I would spend my day answering emails. I would read emails and I would answer emails mm-hmm. and it was like, just, it was destroying me. I mean, mm-hmm. literally physically I had to go to a chiropractor because <laughs> I just was sitting, you know, it was just you're sitting much. at a desk. So I, and so now I don't have my everybody wins email. I don't have the common hall board that I was on email. So I've gotten rid of two email addresses that I don't check. Well, I kind of do sometimes because I still have access to it but it's so liberating Mm -hmm. um so that has been giving me more time to be still and to not cloud my mind with stuff that just brings me down Mm -hmm. yeah how many email addresses do you have I have three I think yeah so why because I have I have a work I have a professional and then I have a personal okay if that makes sense all right so your professional is the professional what? one i don't really use it it's just for like applying to jobs and oh, okay. like freelance okay. stuff i do i don't really okay. use that or check that 
Okay. Um, but yeah, it is kind of weird concept. And I love, um, obviously Bill Gates is with stuff that recently came out about him, a little sketchy guy, but, um, he was a very successful businessman and he has these, uh, I don't know if they're weekends or weeks, but essentially he goes somewhere where there's no internet. He doesn't bring his phone. Oh, and reads. And it takes a couple of days and he just reads, writes, and thinks. Yeah, and did I've, you see and that he, And by himself. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and um, he sits at a wooden desk. Did you yeah, see that? Mm-hmm. That was cool. So, I wish I had a list of what he was reading. Well, he. I think he comes out with a list of books to okay. read every year or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, I think... I kind of, I almost want to do that myself. Um, and I think that would be kind of inter- interesting for other people to do too, just because again, we don't really, I can't remember the last time I spent 24 hours by myself. Uh, I, I, I mean, it must be year. I don't know if I've ever done that. Um, right. And just cause you're always constantly thinking um, about others and, kind of like oh what are we doing this weekend um that reflection time doesn't happen a lot i agree that's a great idea Mm -hmm. so bill gates does it for one week i don't know if it's a week or if it's like four or five days i don't i don't i don't really remember it could also just be a weekend i'm trying to think yeah i don't remember that would be that would be so much fun and what I've noticed is my reading stamina just to sit for a half hour is a chore for me because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm constantly lo- letting the dog out. I need yeah. You have all these other, all these other responsibilities. <laughs> the coffee table needs to be dusted. That's <laughs> mm. funny. You should do that. Avery. At least a couple days. days. Yeah, maybe I will. We'll see. Go camping. I'm reading. Woods. I'm reading two books. I usually read two books at a time. I need to mm-hmm. kind of take a break, but but it takes me a long time to get through them. Yeah, so many books, so little time. Mm. What books are you reading right now? I'm reading um, the Radium Girls. It's about the women, and it was most. It was all women back in the 20s, 1920s that were painting the dials on watches and they were using radium to do it. And radium was like this luminous paint that glowed Mm. and the jobs were very high paying. And the women that were working were in their twenties, like 22, 24, 26. And they were, the paint had radium in it. And what their process of painting was, they would take the um, paintbrush and they would put the tip of the paintbrush in their mouth to wet it. Mm -hmm. And then they would dip into the paint and then they would do the dial. It's very meticulous work. And then they would repeat mouth, Mm -hmm. dip, paint, mouth, dip, paint. And, they started doing it when it was like World War II and the soldiers were buying these watches. But then it continued after the war. Anyways, a lot of these women died of radium jaw. And so radium actually acts like calcium 
and I just read this last night, acts like a, like calcium. So when you take calcium in your body, it goes right to the bones for some mm-hmm. reason. I actually never knew that. <laughs> so, um, so radium acted like calcium and went right to their bones and just nestled oh. in there. And so these women, their jaws, there was this one picture I looked at, looked it up. She had this big, huge growth. It was like, like foot long from her really? jaw. Yeah. And then it, they would go to the dentist and they would have, they would get their teeth would get infected. So the dentist would pull the t- tooth out and then normally that would heal, mm-hmm. but it would, it, but you know, weeks later they would go back and their, their, um, their hole there wouldn't heal. And at one point, oh, a lot of times the women would go there and the dentist would look at their jaw and he would put his hands on their jaw, like, like inside and their mm. jaw just caved in. Oh my goodness. Yeah. These, I mean, so it was, oh my goodness. So it took, and it, I'm halfway through, it's a long mm. book. Um, it took a lot of doctors and people that were, investigating this to say that it was occupational hazard because the people that owned it, the radium, American radium corporation didn't deem it a, um, occupational hazard. Yeah. And so they were choosing profit over humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So eventually they'll get their due because they don't use radium anymore, but it's just, and so was this just one watch company or was it kind of everyone so, was doing it? So there was like three different ones and there, there was one in Orange, New Jersey, and there was one in Waterbury, Connecticut, where my mom grew up. Is that how you heard of it? No, I, no, I, I, I don't know how I heard of it. And then they went to Illinois and opened up another one and they were actually at one point trying to separate. So in, um, I think in Orange, New Jersey, some woman had filed a claim against them and were suing them and suing them for like 75,000 back then. Um, and so what they, I think what they did is they moved their plan to Illinois. So the um, information would um, deter people from working there so back then they didn't have the internet right so it was mm-hmm. easy to hide information from people you just go to a different town or a different yeah. state <laughs> yeah exactly but, yeah wasn't... so the book reading the book is just so horrifying <laughs> yeah i can imagine oh my god yeah that kind of sounds yeah. like i was just listening to a podcast this week about uh, a journalist that did a he wrote a book on monsanto the chemical company oh yeah. Um, and talking about the whole roundup kind of. Isn't it? Uh, and that's still being used. It's yeah. just. Well, so one thing I found that, so the reason roundup exists is because they were trying to create a substitute for agent orange. Oh, really? So obviously what they used in Vietnam. And I don't know if agent orange was Monsanto or not. I forget that part. Um, but obviously it's a terrible chemical. They're still cleaning it up in Vietnam to this day, spending hundred, hundreds of millions of us tax dollars to do it too. Um, yeah. but so the, the idea that this chemical roundup was going to be safer, less harmful to the environment and humans 
Um, and it, so it's essentially a better version of Asian orange. So the origins of it were pure in the heart. They're, they're trying to do a better thing. Um, but it turns out that obviously there's been a lot of cases linking it to, I forget what disease, um, but it's, it's still being used and sold today. Um, and there, there is, um, I know there's like documents and transcriptions of the board meetings that Monsanto, or I don't know if they were board meetings, but just kind of internal meetings where they essentially found out that it was harming people. Um, and they just kind of decided to continue to go forward. Um, it's with crazy. It. I just looked that up. Do you know, it says that bear. That, that's bear not like purchased. Bear. Yeah, it's I like didn't know that. The, like bear aspirin. So yeah, so they talked about that. So bear purchased it in, I don't know. Do you have it in front of you? What year they purchased it? But but essentially, no. the I remember in the podcast the guy said the amount they paid for Monsanto, that's how much they're worth now. Oh really? Yeah. So they were worth obviously a lot more, and then I I just can't believe it's still on the market. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- people use it to kill their weeds. Because it kill works. The toughest, cu- toughest weeds and grasses down to the root. Mm-hmm. But it's like a mindset, you know. Like yeah. You don't, yeah. And, you know, whatever you put into the soil is going to come back to you somehow, mm-hmm. one way or another. And whatever you put in the air will as well. So. Yeah. But what I did see, I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, by 2030, the ozone layer will be fully prepared. Really? Yeah. I, I, it might be 2050. Hold on. Let me Google it. Because we're not using aerosols anymore. <laughs> What's the, you probably don't even know what an aerosol is. <laughs> do you? <laughs> no, I'm I do sorry, know what you're talking sweet. about. <laughs> I do know. So the, oh, the ozone layer? So it'll heal by, it'll heal completely by the 2030s. Um, so, and I think the main thing that has to do with that is the, I forget what it stands for, but the CFCs, it's like carbon floral, carbon floral hydrogen compound. Yes. Yeah. 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 Cause I know that that was a major, and that was the thing that was like eating at the ozone layer the most. Absolutely. And they banned yeah. that across all the countries. Not all the countries, but so I guess that just kind of goes to show that steps like that can, can help the earth as a whole, just simple steps like that. Absolutely. And we also kind of saw that when COVID hit, when there's, especially the initial lockdowns um, in places like Venice, when the water is just cleared up and there are dolphins going through the streets, it was crazy. And then places like China, where it's normally like smog and terrible air quality was pristine, not pristine, but better better than it was. Same with other cities. Yeah. Yeah, Our human behavior definitely. If we change it, we can, they're trying, they're trying to figure out how to reduce methane. Mm -hmm. So I have a solution. You have a solution. Yeah. Stop producing milk. Stop it. Stop. I don't know if it's legal to say. Legal? <laughs> you well, can say whatever you want. Stop producing milk, the dairy industry, because mm. 
the cow, the whole cow's life is, I mean, we're drinking another male, another fee, another mammal's milk and then stop eating cows. I think the whole, I can't have my ribeye. No. So dad and I, we just, dad and I, we just saw this amazing movie called cow. It was so good. There was the international art, um, international music, um, film festival mm-hmm. in Burlington, and the one was that it at we the saw, Flynn. It was at the Black Theater. Okay, down the waterfront, mm-hmm. and um, I wish I could remember the lady who produced it. She's a famous producer. With pretension. Well, here, let me. Um, What's it called? Cow. It's called Cow. Um, and so the storyline was following a a female. Is it called First Cow? No. Is it British? It is British. It's the British. Andrea Arnold. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the documentary was amazing and it was very um it wasn't taking sides it wasn't like against the cow industry or anything it was just showing Mm. you a um a lifespan of a of a cow being milked and then giving birth so it starts out with the um cow giving birth Mm. and then they take the baby away from the mom because they need her milk right Mm. and then so they take the baby and then and you could see that she was distraught i mean they took her baby away Mm. and then they feed the baby with um milk but then they and then they bring the mom to be milked and so and that's her main purpose is every year to get pregnant Mm -hmm. and to keep you know getting milked and just her whole existence was just that Mm. and she's in like it's you know she's like in prison Mm. she's in prison getting milked and there were scenes where she's in the pasture and you know she's kind of eating grass at one point but you know at the end she is a fuss she's fussy and she doesn't want to be milked and I guess she might have contracted something where her milk wasn't being let go and she the poor thing her sack was so big she could hardly walk and so her demise was you know they bring her into a into the barn and they give Mm -hmm. her some feed and they shoot her Mm -hmm. you know so that was her life but anyway so the big talk about methane is actually cows produce a lot of methane by burping and farting Mm -hmm. and (laughs) right and they're trying to change their diet so they don't burp as much Mm. it's like really so what's the purpose of the cow like i know maybe people could have a cow as a pet or i don't know what do you think avery you gotta help me out on this one this this is the and i'm glad we got to this that you brought this (laughs) up because this is my number one like moral conundrum really the omnivore's dilemma (laughs) <laughs> hundred well not the omnivores dilemma be, just because so there so there are sustainable ways to create meat whether it's p- pork or beef or chicken but even if you're doing it in the most sustainable way yeah. you're raising animals to kill them and eat them 
like Correct. ethically and morally that's like against everything I stand for is like raising something to kill and eat. Like whether it's hum- like, I, I just like morally, like right. you would think, but at the same yeah. time, I like, I love like I mentioned a steak, a burger, fried chicken. Um, it's something, and it's something that I've grown up with and it's a human experience is eating meat and cooking meat with other people. There's something right. about um, cooking a steak over a, charcoal grill or there and there's something about cooking like a big like we just had a pork um we have did a pork shoulder with carnitas with all my friends last weekend and there's something like communal and like human about that right absolutely but at the same time like i said it's like you're just raising these animals to slaughter them and and then obviously there's companies like Tyson and Purdue chicken. And then there's also like major beef companies that their practices are not good. And they just try and they essentially keep these animals in cages and fatten them as much as they can. And I, and then not only that, but the people that are just butchering cows all day or chickens, that's gotta be, it desensitizes you from anything. Well, yeah, there's uh fast food nation you should read that mm-hmm. they're working conditions that these people have yeah it's terrible it's horrifying yeah yeah and i yeah. did also um also going back to that podcast i was listening to i forget the guy's name because um, he was fascinating but he he mentioned that it's illegal to videotape after omnivore's dilemma it's illegal to videotape that stuff now in the u.s really i believe yeah you can't like videotape meat packaging plants really yeah which is like kind of sketchy <laughs> like why yeah why yeah and i think they deemed yeah. it as like a safety hazard or like intellectual yeah. properties theft or whatever yeah, but i it's... doubt it yeah yeah it was uh food incorporated that i remember taking you and cam too mm-hmm and the food incorporated was actually the omnivore's dilemma. Yeah, it was based off the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, and I, I love that phrase, the omnivore's dilemma, because I I find myself, and I, that's why I try to avoid this conversation a lot. To be honest, I know. Um, yeah, so I just think you know I I like a cheeseburger too now and then I really do, mm-hmm. um, but the the mass production and just, I don't know. Those beyond burgers are pretty good. Well, and it's the, like you said, like the disconnect. Cause so yeah. for, for example, I, the way I get my meat that I eat is from butcher box comes in a box um, frozen. Uh, I, I don't know where the animal, I don't know where animals, like what state came the animal from. came from. I, I know it comes from like Philadelphia area. Um, Are you sure I think, it's not coming from China? Yeah, no, because Butcher Box <laughs> okay. tells you, and they, yeah. Um, okay. But but what I'm saying is, stay in the 30s or 40s. If you lived on a farm and you had a cow, you know where that beef is coming from. If you had a pig wow. and you slaughtered it for pork, like, you know where that's coming from. Either right. you did it yourself or someone in your small town. Um, did right. it and if you went to a restaurant you know that the restaurant gets their beef from the local rancher or whatever uh and i right. think 
Today, it's much more, oh, I go to Stop and Shop down the street or Hannaford's uh, in Vermont. You have really packaged. (laughs) Yeah, you have really no idea. It could could have been from California and they froze it and brought it over here and thawed it out. You don't. You don't really know. And there are like smaller stores like um, health food stores that have local stuff. Uh, But if you're living somewhere like I live in Massachusetts, Boston, you can't really get local meat. There's there's no really. Do you remember the um, mad cow disease that Mm -hmm. that crept up and they determined um, it was in the it was in McDonald's and I I forget what the the amount of. different beef that would be in one burger like so like the burger itself wasn't just from one source it was yeah, like multiple was... sources and they couldn't trace back where mm. the mad cow disease was. well because they just put That's... all the meat into one big thing and then right. make it from, from there the which makes sense on them on their end right. but it's kind of strange when you're thinking when you're eating a big mac and you're eating 12 different cows yeah Boy, it's so nice to chat with you. Yeah. All right. You so, still have that sweatshirt on. Yeah. You have had that sweatshirt, I think, since you were 10. No, it was high school. You think? Was it? Did we I get that know. at TJ Maxx? Or did we pay full price for that? <laughs> I, I still remember you. I still remember that. Mm-hmm. It's maroon, isn't it? Yep. yep. Yeah. So thanks for coming on. Have you, you've gotten uh, everything you want to say off your chest? Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the pod. Hopefully you'll be back at some point. Yeah. 